So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the privilege of being here, uh, for the privilege of, of being in your presence and in your presence together. But Father, we, we need for you to speak, to speak into our hearts, into our lives, to change and to transform us by the power of your Spirit. So we ask now, Lord, that, that I might speak your word and only your word, and that only your word would be heard here. That you would make of us better reflections of the Lord Jesus. That we might bring you honor and praise and glory in His precious name. And we thank you for all these things because of Jesus. Amen. Turn, if you would, to... First uh, Timothy, chapter four. <clears throat> um, if you happen to be using the Brown Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page one eight four eight. First Timothy, chapter four, and verse one. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise your youth, but... Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves, yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. One of the many things I love about the Lord Jesus 
is that He never hid anything from us. There's no fine print in the contract. He told us that although He paid the price for our salvation, our following of Him would also be costly. And that we would have troubles and tribulations in this world, but that He had overcome the world. And from the very beginning, the Lord Jesus also warned us that there would be those who would twist and distort the message of the kingdom for their own gain. He told us, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul echoed this same kind of sentiment in his uh, farewell address to the elders of Ephesus. uh, When he said in uh, Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I did a little refresher regarding Christian heresies. And when you look over the centuries, the list of heresies is astounding. Almost all of the traditional Christian doctrines, like the Trinity, the substitutional sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, the necessity of God's grace for our salvation, the sufficiency and inerrancy of the Scriptures, the place of good deeds, as an expression of gratitude for God's immeasurable grace, almost every significant and essential doctrine uh, has been twisted or denied by one group or another throughout the history of the Christian church. We stand near enough 2,000 years this side of the cross. But way back, less than 150 years after um, Paul's death, Arrhenius, the Bishop of Lyons, was compelled to write a treatise commonly referred to as Against Heresies. And he wrote that to confront the growing threat of the Gnostic heresy. Around 610... Muhammad had a vision that was later described as a visit from the angel Gabriel. And then later visions led him to describe the Bible, and especially the New Testament, as having been corrupted. These visions, when recorded, became the basis of the Koran. In the 1820s, Joseph Smith was reportedly shown some golden tablets that he then translated, which ultimately formed the basis of the Book of Mormon. In 1866, Mary Baker Eddy, miraculously recovered from a life-threatening accident, 
And as a result, she went on to found the Church of Christ Scientists, whose doctrines are neither in accord with classical Christianity, nor are they scientific. Um, a decade or so later, Charles Taze Russell began a Bible study group that quickly drifted away from traditional Christian understandings, and that group ultimately became known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Closer to home in our own time are those who insist that Gentiles must keep Torah to please God and to obtain salvation. Not to mention more dramatic groups like the followers of Jim Jones. In our text this morning, Timothy is reminded of this uncomfortable truth. That in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. The heretics in Ephesus, where Timothy was to minister, were propagating a heresy that had pretty grave consequences for life. These heretics were the, among the early Gnostics that um, Arrhenius uh, railed against a hundred and some odd years later. Uh, but the essence of Gnosticism is that they believed that the spirit is altogether good and matter is altogether evil. So as a consequence... There were those who preached that everything to do with the body was evil because it was matter. And that everything to do with the world was evil because it was matter. In Ephesus, this resulted in um, two definite errors, especially, that Paul um, mentions. He says that, that the heretics insisted that we must, as far as possible, abstain from food because food is material and is therefore evil. And food ministered to the body, and the body was evil. So, deal with them both. And they also insisted that we have to abstain from marriage because, according to their twisted doctrine, the instincts of the body were evil and therefore must be entirely suppressed. Paul went on to say about these heretics that they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The antidote to heresy is, of course, to recognize the truth. And in this case, Food was created by a good God for our benefit. In the same way, He also created the two sexes and marriage so that we could reproduce and support each other through life. We need to recognize Him as the author of these gifts and give Him our thanks and praise. John Calvin wrote that our partaking of food is... uh, um, if, our, if our partaking of food 
is, is not done in holiness unless it is accompanied by true knowledge and the calling on the name of God. He said, we're no better than animals if we don't give thanks to the Lord for His provision. As Christians, we need to be doing all we can to develop an attitude of gratefulness to God for all that we have. And regular prayer before meals and otherwise is one of the best ways to cultivate a thankful heart. Paul went on in his letter to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The words of the truth and good doctrine are the best antidote for the lies that are promoted by some. According to the old story, the best way to identify counterfeit currency is to be steeped in the appearance and the feel of the real stuff. And in the same way, and for the same reason, promoting and teaching the truth of the Word of God was Tim's mission in Ephesus. But that raises a question for each one of us. It's one thing for the teachers of the Word to be here every Sunday. But do we actively absorb the teaching? Do we allow ourselves to be changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit and by the living Word? Or do we gather just because it feels good to be here, to meet again with our friends? Simply put, there is so much error and spiritual and moral danger that is being promoted publicly today that we dare not allow ourselves to slip into complacency. The irreverent, silly myths that are popularly promoted may look attractive from one perspective, but from the perspective of eternity, they can be deadly. So Paul writes, wrote to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both the one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Since our bodies are good gifts from God, we ought to treat them with at least the same level of care and that uh, a respectful custodian gives to a building in his charge. And that means that we ought to do everything in our powers to ensure that our bodies are properly maintained. A few years ago, I was part of a team that was preparing a proposal for several buildings for the Ontario Provincial Police. The requirements of the proposal indicated that the buildings were to be designed and constructed, that they were to be occupied and used by the OPP, maintained by the contractor for 30 years, and at the end of that period, the structures were to be turned over to the OPP in as-new condition. Well, you know, obviously that meant that it had to have a fresh coat of paint before it was turned over, and that all of the building systems had to be functioning properly according to the design specs. Well, I mean, you know that, well, that meant that the, all the heating appliances had to be replaced sometime just before the 30-year mark, because otherwise they wouldn't be as new. And all kinds, you know, the masonry all had to be checked and it was a, it was a big to-do. For various reasons, I was thankful that our team was not a successful bidder. Um, but the point is that if we can do that for mere human structures, how much more should we be doing for the temple of the Holy Spirit within us, whom we have from God? At issue is not merely the physical maintenance of these bodies that God has entrusted to our care. Although that is really important. Paul acknowledges that bodily training is of some value. But then he presses the contrast. Our physical bodies have a time-limited purpose. And in eternity... We're going to enjoy new bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. So far more important than merely maintaining our physical health is the training in godliness, which is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The word that Paul uses for training is a form of the Greek word from which we get our English words gymnasium and gymnastics. So Paul is telling Timothy and us that there's some effort, some work that's required here. In other words, while the Holy Spirit will transform us from within, the outward action will require practice we'll need to be actively engaged in it. Take the example of a young child. The child grows physically uh, to a point and then starts to learn to walk. 
Question. Does the child succeed at the first attempt? Not likely. It might be the, the rare exception, but not very often. There are many utter failures, bumps, bruises, and tears before success is achieved. And the same might be said of the process of learning any new skill. Whether it's riding a bike or learning calculus or medicine, it's going to take a while. It's going to take effort. Even if we have the gift for it, it still takes a while to hone that gift to the point where it's useful. And the same will be said of the pursuit of godliness. The word godliness is a contraction of God-likeness. It describes a person who is so attuned to the Holy Spirit that everything she does has the aroma of heaven about it. But the problem with defining godliness is a little like the exam question that Rabbi Zacharias told about. Apparently he walked into this exam and there was just one question on the paper. The question was, define God, give three examples. Uh, I can't define God. And since he's unique, I can't give three examples. <laughs> How do you answer? One idea that expresses the idea of godliness um, in the New Testament is the Old Testament expression, the fear of the Lord, which was almost a synonym for believer under the Old Covenant. Someone who fears the Lord does not live in terror of God, but has a healthy respect for God and seeks in both heart and action to love Him. And at the very least, not to be offensive to Him. Our respect for God shows by how we live and how we talk. Godly people live in such a way as to please the Lord. The ungodly don't really consider or care much about what God thinks about their way of life. But the godly person is different. And it's, it's... Remember when we talked about righteousness? Righteousness is a relationship word. The righteous person does what is needed to maintain the relationship. Well, godliness is very close to that. If you're a godly person, you'll do what you need to do to maintain that relationship with the living God. And that spills out in, into your everyday life. Um, so godliness is shown by our, our living in such a way as to please this God, this one who has redeemed us by the precious blood of Jesus. Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Godliness is not just avoiding sin in order to escape punishment. It's avoiding the things that we know do not please our Father. Because we love Him more than we love sin. More than we love our own way. But more than simply avoiding some things, godliness also involves embracing those thoughts and actions and attitudes that will please our Redeemer and Lord. In fact, Godliness fulfills the first and greatest commandment. You remember? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And as an inevitable consequence, it also fulfills the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If godliness involves avoiding the things that we know do not please our Lord and embraces those thoughts and actions and attitudes that will please Him, how do we know? How do we know what doesn't please Him? How do we know what will please Him? Well, that brings us back to the first paragraph in which Paul reminds Timothy and us that we need to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you follow. There's an odd phrase um, in verse 10 that some have misinterpreted. Verse 10 reads, uh, To this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What's the focus of Paul and Timothy's labor? It's the promise of life that is found in godliness. That's the focus. That's, and that's not working to gain salvation, but working to point everyone to life in Christ. And why do we place our hope in the living God? Well, because He's the Savior. He's the only one. He's the Rescuer, the Redeemer. And then Paul adds the phrase, especially of those who believe, to clarify that while the scope of salvation, the invitation to eternal life is universal. It's every, they extended to every single person on the face of the earth. But he's not advocating any kind of universal salvation. Salvation is a gift, but it's one that needs to be actively received by repentance and faith.
Command and teach these things. Verse 11. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. <clears throat> Timothy had been Paul's protege for something like 15 years by the time um, Timothy was sent to Ephesus. But the word that Paul used of Timothy suggests a man of military age that, in other words, up to about 40 years. So Timothy had a disadvantage. In a culture that revered the gray head, he was seen as only a youth. He was only probably in his mid-30s by this point. Only a youth. The uh, philosopher Plato was once accused of dishonorable conduct. And he said, well, we're going to have to live in such a way that all will see that the charge is false. Much the same instruction is given in First Peter. Where Peter says, hey, you live in such a way that when they revile you, when they accuse you, they're going to be able to see, you know, others are going to be able to see that the accusation is totally false. Because where verbal defenses do not silence criticism, right conduct might. So Timothy was charged to live an exemplary life of godliness, setting the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In other words, he was to be godly. The earliest record we have of a typical Sunday worship period is given by Justin Martyr in about the year 170, 170, so you know, 100 and some odd years after Paul's death. Justin Martyr wrote, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gathered together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray, and when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of, all, of that over which thanks has been given. You notice the reading of Scripture, the memoir, memoirs of the apostles, and the writings of the prophets. Um, and 
the exhortation and teaching. And that was a continuation of what had been early, well, Jewish practice. In Nehemiah, for example, the, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Um, and then in Acts 13, we have that same pattern there. Paul and his companions are, go to a synagogue after the reading of the Law and the Prophets. Um, the leader of the synagogue says, we have some visitors here. Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. That was the wrong thing to say, but because they got a sermon from Paul on the Gospel. Um, but then Paul goes on in, in his letter to some very personal instruction to Timothy. He's not to neglect the gift. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, he's to... He, Paul... Uh, Paul instructs Timothy to give himself to the reading of the Scriptures. And remember at this point, the Scriptures consisted of the Old Testament. By this time, some of the other writings that comprise our New Testament are being circulated. I'm not sure whether they are accepted as Scripture yet, but they are certainly respected. Um, and we probably have by this stage Gospel of Mark maybe the Gospel of Luke being circulated okay it's, um, so we probably have at least two of the Gospels and of course some of Paul's letters um, what was Timothy's gift though? Can you figure it out from the context here? I think the, the gift that was imparted to Timothy was the gift of teaching and preaching. Um, because he was instructed to devote himself to it and to do everything in his power to get better at it for the betterment of his hearers. You know, spiritual gifts and the so-called natural gifts have at least this much in common. We have to develop them. And sometimes this can be hard work. Ask any of our musicians how much, how many hours they have to practice every week and over how many years to get to the level of proficiency that we enjoy today. It doesn't come easily. It comes with a lot of diligent work. So we look at this chapter and there's some questions that just reading the passage raises to me 
And the first one, of course, is do I, do you know the Lord Jesus? Have you received this priceless gift of salvation? Do you acknowledge Him to be your Lord and Savior? We make a practice uh, to deliberately cultivate an attitude of thankfulness for all the many ways the Lord has blessed us. Giving thanks before meals can easily become an empty ritual unless we genuinely address God as Father in the name of Jesus. Is the reading of the Word of God and its exposition important to us? Important enough that we'd be willing to die for the privilege. A lot of our brothers and sisters are doing just that. Just gathering together to hear the Scriptures read puts them in jeopardy. Do we allow the Holy Spirit to change and to transform us? Do we actively cooperate with Him to become more Christ-like? And do I, do you, know what our primary spiritual gift is? If you're not sure then maybe it's time to spend time in prayer and maybe with a trusted friend with the aim of discovering it. And then knowing what our gift is. If we know what our gift is, what are we doing to develop and to practice it? Tough question. But if we don't address the question, we just let it go in one ear and out the other, then what's the point of reading the Scripture? I'll leave it with you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. Thank You that You love us enough to have set before us the hard word, the difficult word, the word that requires of us some action, that requires us to sit up and take notice. Lord, we thank You. Thank You for that incredible grace by which we have been introduced to You, to Your love. And thank You, Lord, for the privilege of of getting to know You through Jesus. Lord, we ask that Your Spirit would move within us. Help us, Lord, to take these words of instruction and encouragement and to apply them so that all our brothers and sisters will see our progress in godliness that we might together bring you all the more glory and honor in the precious name of Jesus.
And we thank you for all of this in His name. Amen.